Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Saturday Night Fever from 1977. The studio, Paramount Pictures, release date December 16, 1977. The running time, 119 minutes, with the rating of R. The budget, $3.5 million, and the box office was a complete smash, taking in $94.2 million. That was domestic. It was the fourth-ranked movie of 1977, and then it made an extra $142 million internationally. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 82% fresh from 50 reviews. Their critics' consensus is boasting a smart, poignant story, a classic soundtrack, and a star-making performance from John Travolta. Saturday Night Fever ranks among the finest dramas of the 1970s. So I have two reviews, and I'll get into why a little bit later, but uh, here is Roger Ebert's original review from 1977, where he gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars. 
Saturday Night Fever is an especially hard-edged case and a very good movie. It's about a bunch of Brooklyn kids who aren't exactly delinquents, but are fearsomely tough and cynical and raise a lot of hell on Saturday nights. They live for Saturday night, and John Travolta is the center of the crowd. He's Tony Manero, the best dancer, the best looker, the guy with the most confidence. His life is just as screwed up as everyone else's, but they don't know that. And they tell him, you know something, Tony? You always seem to be in control. He is not. He works all week at a paint and hardware store and comes home to a family that worships his brother, who is a priest. The family is sketched briefly right at the beginning in the dinner scene, which, like the whole movie, is able to walk the tightrope between what's funny and what's pathetic. The Brooklyn we see in Saturday Night Fever reminds us a lot of New York's Little Italy, as Martin Scorsese saw it and Who's That Knocking at My Door and Mean Streets. The characters are similar. They have few aims or ambitions and little hope of breaking out to the larger world of success, a world symbolized for them by Manhattan and the Brooklyn Bridge reaching out powerfully toward it. But Saturday Night Fever isn't as serious as the Scorsese films. It does, after all, have almost wall-to-wall music in it, mostly by the Bee Gees, but even including Disco Duck. And there are the funny scenes, like the one where Travolta shouts at his father, You hit my hair! to balance the tragic and the self-destructive ones. There's also a hint of Rocky, whose poster Travolta's character has on his bedroom wall. The movie's musical and dancing sequences are dazzling. Travolta and Karen Lynn Gorney are great together, and Travolta does one solo in a broken shot that the audience is cheered for. The movie was directed by John Badham, and his camera occupies the dance floor so well that we really do understand the lure of the disco world for all of the emptiness and cruelty the characters find there. And that's the end of his review. Now, in 1999, Roger Ebert did a revised review, which mentions his late partner, Gene Siskel. And that's why I'll read this one. Saturday Night Fever was Gene Siskel's favorite movie, and he watched it at least 17 times. We all have movies like that, titles that transcend ordinary categories of good and bad and penetrate straight to our hearts. My own shortlist would include La Dolce Vita, A Hard Day's Night, and The Third Man. These are movies that represent what I yearned for at one time in my life, and to see them again is like listening to a song that was popular the first summer you were in love. Although Saturday Night Fever appealed to him primarily on an emotional level, Siskel spoke about it in terms of themes, and there are two central ones. First, the desire of all young people to escape from a life sentence of boring work and attain their vision of the beckoning towers of Manhattan. Second, the difficulty that some men have in relating to women as comrades and friends, and not simply sex facilitators. So why, I wondered, did this movie mean so much to Gene Siskel? Because he saw it at a certain time, I imagine. Because Tony Manero's dreams touched him. Because while Tony was on the dance floor, his problems were forgotten and his limitations were transcended. The first time I saw La Dolce Vita, it represented everything I hoped to attain. Ten years later, it represented a version of what I was trapped in. Ten years after that, it represented what I had escaped from. And yet its appeal to me only grew. I had changed, but the movie hadn't. So movies are like time machines, returning us to the past. Gene bought the famous white suit worn by Travolta at a charity auction for $145,000. I got to inspect it once. It came with a shirt that buttoned under the crotch, so it would still look neat after a night on the dance floor. I asked Gene if he ever tried it on. It was too small, he said, but it wasn't the size that mattered. It was the idea of the suit.
And that was the end of Ebert's revised review in 1999. All right, so I was born in 1978. This was eight months after Saturday Night Fever was released, but the movie had a major cultural impact. So much so, my mom thought enough of the film and the soundtrack to make note of it for the current events at the time of my baby book, which she still has. (laughs) There's even a picture of yours truly around, no, maybe three or four years old, posing just like John Travolta in the movie poster. There's also a great photo of me holding my vinyl copy of Sesame Street Fever with Grover posed like Travolta on the cover. So this is one of those films, kind of like Flashdance, where I knew all about the film simply because of the soundtrack. I wouldn't actually see the movie until years later. And if I recall, I saw Stayin' Alive, which was the sequel, before I saw Saturday Night Fever, because my mom had dubbed Staying Alive on VHS, but not Saturday Night Fever for some reason. Also, on this episode, because the RIAA crackdown of you know using music in podcasts, I sadly had to pull one of my great soundtrack episodes. However, I still have the original interview, and the one for Saturday Night Fever was the first to feature my mom chatting about the soundtrack, so I will tack it on at the end of the episode, unfortunately, sans music. All right, let's get into the main cast. You, of course, have John Travolta, who plays Tony Manero. Now, I'll discuss in a bit in the making of the film about how big Travolta was getting during the filming of Saturday Night Fever. Travolta first started his career in the early 1970s, and he had small roles on TV shows before landing the role of Vinnie Barbarino in the series Welcome Back, Cotter, which made him a teen idol. Travolta then had a memorable role in the original version of Carrie in 1976, playing the role of Billy. After Saturday Night Fever, Travolta became a superstar worldwide and then followed up with the equally iconic musical Grease. Carrie Lynn Gorney plays Stephanie, and this would be by far her most prominent role on film or television, though she was on the soap opera All My Children from 1970 to 74. Now, crazy enough, after Saturday Night Fever, she basically retired from show business and managed an art gallery in Manhattan. She did return to acting in the early 1990s and continues to work still on television and film. The director, John Badham, he started his career directing TV shows and TV movies in the early 1970s. His feature film debut as a director was 1976's The Bingo Long Traveling All-Star Motor King starring Billy Dee Williams and James Earl Jones and Richard Pryor, which was about the Negro Leagues for professional baseball. And then his next film was Saturday Night Fever. Some notable films that Badham directed after Saturday Night Fever, War Games in 1983 with Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy, Short Circuit in 1986, also with Ali Sheedy and Steve Gutenberg, which also had an homage to Saturday Night Fever with Johnny Five and Ali Sheedy, who was also named Stephanie, <laughs> dancing to the movie when it was on television. All right, let's get into the making of the film. So it's easy to forget now, but Saturday Night Fever was just a cultural phenomenon. Certain movies infiltrate the culture for whatever reason. You think about Rebel Without a Cause, Easy Rider, The Godfather, Rocky, Jaws, all sorts of movies like that. And and Saturday Night Fever did this as well. It was truly one of the reasons disco took off the way it did in the late 1970s. For better or worse, it was perfect timing, and it was the fashion, the dancing, the music, everything. When director John Badham first read the script, he didn't feel like he was reading a musical, but a drama about a young man who was lost in the world except when he was on the dance floor. It was a real character piece. Producer Robert Stigwood enjoyed Travolta's work on Welcome Back, Cotter, and Travolta had auditioned for Stigwood on Broadway for Jesus Christ Superstar. Stigwood realized Saturday Night Fever would be perfect for him and potentially make him a film star. Now, Stigwood had read a New York Magazine cover story called The Tribal Rights of the Saturday Night, written by Nick Cohn. 
and this article was the basis of what became Saturday Night Fever. Interestingly enough, when the article first came out, it was treated as an investigative reporting on the disco club scene. Many years later, Cohn admitted it was a work of fiction, and was surprised it was even published by a well-known magazine. Now, he was quoted in 2016 of saying, It reads to me as obvious fiction, albeit based on observation and some knowledge of disco culture. No way could it sneak past customs now. In the 1960s and 70s, the line between fact and fiction was blurry. Few editors asked the tough questions. For the most part, it was a case of don't ask, don't tell. Now, these dance clubs were like completely different worlds for those wrapped up in the scene and when they went there. Like the title of the article, it was almost like a tribal ritual for these clubbers. Very intense. This wasn't for the casual club goers in the early days of disco. So even though Travolta was a newcomer to film, he was a teen idol due to Welcome Back Cotter, and thousands of young fans would try to get a glimpse of their hero when they were trying to film on the streets of New York for Saturday Night Fever. The filmmakers even had to shut down production a few times because they couldn't get anything done with all the people around. They often filmed early in the morning for exterior shots to avoid the crowds of people looking for a glimpse of Travolta. The film had a huge shelf life as word of mouth spread and people couldn't get enough of the film and the soundtrack. And you know you've hit icon status when non-stop parodies occur, whether it be from Saturday Night Live or a Sesame Street album, which I said I had, or in the movie Airplane, you know you've hit it big time. Now, not all of the tracks from the Bee Gees were written specifically for the soundtrack. You Should Be Dancing and Jive Talking were hits from the two albums prior to the film. Stigwood just loved those songs. He wanted them to be included in the film. The rest of the songs were being written at the time of the new album, which evolved into what became the huge hits on the soundtrack, like Stayin' Alive and How Deep Is Your Love, Night Fever, and More Than a Woman. Now, the Bee Gees could write incredible hooks, and it just was a perfect storm that made you know music and film history. And not to be downplayed, but besides the dancing and the music, the other part of what made Saturday Night Fever iconic was the fashion. People really took their clothes seriously before going out dancing. And the wardrobe from John Travolta in the film was yet another huge societal type of shift. You know, the big hair, the big shoes, the wildly patterned shirts, and the tight bell bottoms. I mean, when you think of 70s fashion, you immediately think of Saturday Night Fever on many fronts. Okay, let's get into the film. So the opening of the movie is just iconic, and I don't say that lightly. You have Tony Manero... John Travolta walking, well, he's actually strutting, through the streets of his neighborhood in Bay Ridge in, in Brooklyn while the Bee Gees song Stayin' Alive plays. It's, it's perfectly performed by Travolta because he's strutting in perfect time to the rhythm of the song. Viewers were essentially watching an early music video and didn't even realize it yet. And the reason that Travolta was so lockstep with the rhythm of the song was that the director had the demo of Staying Alive playing while John Travolta filmed his scenes strutting around the neighborhood. And when Travolta stops to grab a slice of pizza, that's his sister serving the pizza to him. Tony works at a small mom-and-pop paint store and is well-liked and charming to everyone. But you can tell he would rather not be working there. Customers like that. It gives them a sense of power. I need some brushes. All right, how much paint are you planning to do? After these two rooms, I wouldn't paint my wife's ass purple. What color is it now? You want to know what color my wife's ass is? You bring it up. Actually, it ain't got no color. Just stripes, them stretch stripes. What about them brushes? Right, see that second display counter over there? 
Now, it's not in the clips, but when Travolta first serves a customer, the older woman, that's John Travolta's mom. It was a true family affair on set. Tony lives with his parents, his grandmother, and his younger sister. Tony pretty much only cares about his appearance, women, and dancing. This, of course, leads to a memorable scene at the dinner table as Tony wraps himself in a white tablecloth in order not to get any food on his threads. Every day is the same thing. I come home, he tell me I'm late for dinner, and you know that I gotta work till 6 o'clock and I can't make dinner in time. You should have been a priest like your brother. You wouldn't worry about a job. Yeah. Every time you mention Frank Jr., you gotta cross yourself. Well, he's a priest, ain't he? Father Frank Jr., your brother. Hey, your mother doesn't have too much to cross yourself about these days. You're so jealous of Frank Jr. Oh, shut up, will you? Hey, hey. Where are you going? And a shirt, watch the shirt, stupid. Okay. Oh, All right, come on. Manja, manja. Yeah, go ahead. Eat, eat. I got more pork chops than more spaghetti. What do you mean you got more pork chops? I'm out of work. Yeah, well, as long as we got a dollar left, we eat good in this house. What? Yeah, I might even get a job myself. Like hell you will. 25 years in construction work, I always burn him a paycheck. What, six, seven months I'm out of work? And all of a sudden, what? You hit me. And talking back. All right, all right. Talking about getting a job and hitting all right, me. All right, no hitting, no slapping at the dinner table. Okay, that's the rule. Hmm? And you was the one was hitting. You never hit me before. Never. Not in front of the kids. One pork chop! One! Hey, Frank! It's disgusting, right? Sick. We just washed the hair. Yeah. You know, I work on my hair a long time, and you, and you hit it. He hits my hair. Take care of his hair. I'm going to take a walk. Don't you walk me to church later? Didn't you go already today? Yeah, confession. I got to go back and pray for something. For what? I got to pray for Father Frank Jr. to call me. And to call him direct. I want him to call me. A son should call his mother. Wait a minute. You're going to church to have God make Frank Jr. call you? Right. Unbelievable. You know, you're turning God into a telephone operator. <laughs> the timing of the slapping of everyone around the dinner table was brilliant. It's just a terrific shot. The main hangout for Tony and his buddies is a disco club called 2001 Odyssey. If Hal only knew. It's amusing to watch everyone smoking in the club, because, ah, those were the days of, <coughs> of, of, of smoking. One of the regulars at the club is Annette, played by Donna Pascal, who the guys really do not treat well. As a kid, I always knew Pascal from the TV series Out of This World, who played the mother to her half-alien daughter named Evie. So it was to my surprise when I finally saw Saturday Night Fever as a kid that this type of role she had in the film was completely different than Out of This World. Which is always amusing to kids because when you're young, you don't always think of the person you always knew in one role being completely different in another. Even if it was 10 years earlier, you know, that's the brilliance of youth. Now, John Travolta is really great in his role, and you get a glimpse early on as he dances with Pascal in Disco Inferno, you know, the moves he possesses. But it's also hilarious in almost a cheesy way how, you know, the Tony character is the king of the club just because of his dancing. And like this funny scene with a woman named Doreen who just fawns over him. Tony, can I wipe off your forehead? Why not? Sure, go ahead. 
Hey, Doreen, it ain't no blowjob. <laughs> hey, you don't know fuck about women, Joey. You get a blowjob easier than you get that. Right? He knows. <laughs> I love to watch you dance, Tony. Oh, yeah? I love it. I love to watch you dance. I, I, I just, just love it, w watching you dance. Hey, Tony, listen, uh, do her a favor. Why don't you take her for a dance, huh? That's a good idea. You want to dance? Would you like to dance with me? I'd dance with you. Charity. <laughs> now tony isn't big on latin music but is enthralled with a woman that takes over the dance floor when the latin music starts playing now fun fact about the dance floor in this club the lights on the floor were synced to match the song beats playing those little touches made these scenes just top notch to watch now and i also forgot this part of the film but the back room of the club also acts as a pseudo strip joint where the bar is <laughs> Annette really likes Tony, but you know, he can't be bothered. Hey, Tony! How you doing? Okay, how you been? All right. You can dance for me. Sure, why not? Okay. Hello, Lucille. Hello, Nuriev. How you doing? You got a 7-7 seven, seven for me? Sure, doll. <laughs> Give me one of your butts, too, all right? Sure. Having another sweepstakes. I know that. It's double the prize money. Five hundred dollars. You gonna enter? Or you'll need a partner. We won before. But we're gonna have to practice. Have to we got people coming in from Manhattan, Revelation, gazebos, you know that. Right? We'll have to practice. That's practice, and that I don't mean dating, I don't mean socializing. It means practice. Why not? We had a date. Yeah, once. Once was enough. Why? Why? And that the whole time you talked about your married sister. And then, and then you was talking about your other married sister. And then your third married sister. I got the idea that all you was interested in was, was being a married sister yourself. I got bored with it. Hey, look, who's I take care of it, huh? Hey, Tony, look, Double J's been in the car 25 minutes with some chick. So what? So I can't get the selfish prick out. These guys can't do nothing without me, don't it? And because everyone still lives at home, I'm assuming that's the reason, uh, if you pick up a woman at a club, the only place to hook up is the one car you arrived in, <laughs> which leads to this funny scene and a great punchline at the end. You know, Joe, you make it with some of these chicks, they think you gotta dance for them. Huh? All right, get out. You've been in there 20 minutes. Come on. 25 in the car, 20 in the chick. Yeah, well, get out before we pull you out. <laughs> she ain't come yet. Just when you care. Hey, come on. Oh, okay. Okay, it's happening. It's happening. It's happening! I'll be out in a minute, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
What did you say your name was? What you realize about this film when you watch it is that it's almost a series of vignettes, a very loose plot, and an excuse to get back to the main draw of the film, which is the music and the dancing, which is exactly what Tony does after breaking up the car sex. And we get some more sequence dances while Night Fever from the BG plays as the smoke comes up from the dance floor. It's just a great looking shot and, and also a great song. Tony and his buddies are basically slackers. They all want to have nice cars and clothes, but essentially want it handed to them on a platter. Back at the paint store, Tony's boss, Mr. Fusco, overhears one of the customers pitching a painter's job to Tony. Now, Mr. Fusco likes Tony and doesn't want to lose him and gives him a surprise raise. What? A raise. You kidding me? Come on, look, see how much it is. You gave me a raise, thank you. I can't believe this. Wait, whoa, you better look first. I don't gotta look, it don't make no difference. You gave me a raise, that's an important it's thing. It's only two fifty. So what? That's two dollars fifty cents, it ain't much. The important thing is it's a raise, I think that's really great. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna give you three fifty, right? Next you week I'll give you three fifty, I'll give you a dollar like more. Well, wait, shut up, will you? Four. I'll make it an even four. Anybody so shit ass happy over a crummy 250 raise? Wait a minute, two, you just said four dollars, didn't you? What the hell are you doing? I just feel like it, right? Girls do that. I got a raise today. How you like that? Yeah. Why don't you say so during dinner? We could have used the conversation. Put them down. Come here. How much you get? It's gonna be four dollars. It was um, it was 250, right? But he raised the raise when he uh, found out I wasn't so dis- you know, disappointed. Four dollars? Yeah. Shit. You know, four dollars buys today. Don't even buy three dollars. I don't see nobody giving you a raise down on employment. Four dollars. I knew you'd piss on it. Go on, just piss on it, right? A raise is like you're good, you know what I mean? You know how many times somebody told me I was good in my life? Two. Two, twice, two fucking times. This raise today and dancing, dancing at the disco. You sure as fuck never did, asshole. Four dollars. <laughs> Fun guy, Tony's dad, huh? Anyway, with that sort of loving family, it's no wonder he's not very nice to Annette when it's obvious she likes him a lot. Why aren't you waiting inside? Well, I wanted to watch you come down the street. I like the way you walk. Ah, oh, shit. Tony, um, listen, I, uh, I've been thinking. Maybe I'll make it with you. That's what you call thinking, huh? Jesus Christ. You know, you're too much in that, you know that? I mean, you say we're gonna make it, that means we're gonna make it, right? I mean, like, I got no say in this at all, right? It's time we went out. You told me you wanted to do it. You told me how horny a man gets when he's 19, how much his balls ache, morning, noon, and night, six days a week, sometimes seven, if you don't get it. How do you remember those things? Look, Annette, we're going to be spending a lot of time together, you know, rehearsing, practicing, and whatnot. If we was balling, it, it would be like we was going together. Not only going with you. Look, I mean, what are you anyway? You're a nice girl or you cunt? I don't know. Both? You can't be both. I mean, that's the thing a girl's got to decide early on. You got to decide whether you're going to be a nice girl or a cunt. <laughs> hey, don't Pete. Hey, don't even man. You got a studio free or what? Yeah, two is free. Good. Hey, hey don't. Ah, uh, steady at 65%. It's always busting my onions. I send them a lot of customers, you know, it gives me free studio time. What do you mean, 65%? Well, that, uh, oh, that, that means that he, uh, 
He scores when 65% of the chicks that come in here. So Tony is there to practice his dancing with Annette, but then he sees the woman from the club who was dancing to the Latin music, and she definitely caught his eye, but the same can't be said for her. Hi. How you doing? Hey, you know, you're a very good dancer, you know that? I would like to meet you. Look, would you, uh, would you mind just going away, okay? What? Don't be hurt, but I... I Don't be hurt. Yeah, I want to be by myself now, you know? So I've seen you 2001. Yeah, so, so. Well, I mean, you was looking at me and I was looking at you, remember? But what is this? I look at a guy longer than a millionth of a second, already he gets delusions of grandeur. You know what you are? I'm going to tell you what you are. I bet it begins with a C, Mr. P. Oh, fine, fine. That's... Uh, I know the type. I, I know the type. Tony goes home and is surprised by his brother, Frank, the priest. It's good to see you. You too. Yeah. You look good. No, I don't. You do. You look wonderful. You're checking out my trophy. Oh, yeah, that's you, huh? Yeah. First prize. Looks just like you. <laughs> hey, what'd you say to them downstairs? They look crazy. They look like zombies, like, like somebody died or something. I think they're in shock, though. In shock? I'm uh, leaving the church, Tony. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Leaving the church. Tell me another one. I'm leaving the priesthood. Oh, come on, Frank. Don't fool around like that. You think I'm losing my hair? It looks awful thin right over here and here. Are you, are you serious? Can I borrow some of your clothes until I buy some? I don't want to wear the uniform. I'm sorry, Frank. I really am. I'm sorry. What are you sorry about? You got fired, huh? <laughs> I didn't get fired. I quit. You quit? Yeah, you can do those things, you know? What, um, what did Mom say? What, what did she say about it? She said, Dear Lord, what am I going to tell Teresa and Marie? And Dad, what do you say? Shame, both of them. They're ashamed, right? You ashamed of me, Tom? Didn't ask why or nothing. Nah, I think they're afraid to. Like I might say, celibacy. You, are you gonna sleep here tonight? You wanna sleep in in my room? Yeah, I thought I thought I would. Alright, you can. I get your blankets for you. In a warped sort of way, Tony is happy that his brother wants to leave the priesthood, as now Tony doesn't seem like so much of a failure in the eyes of his parents. A pretty sad family life for everyone involved. In any case, the news puts a skip into Tony's step, and he decides to keep it at it with the girl who blew him off. Now we find out her name is Stephanie. Hello, Stephanie Mangano. I'm, I'm Tony Monero. We both got the same last initials. How do you like that? Now we get married, I don't have to change the monogram. My luggage, huh? Somebody told me you was practicing to be a bitch. Is that true?
All right, Mr. Monero, what do you want to ask me? I would like to take you out to coffee. Would that be good? That's it, huh? You want me to have coffee with you? I think you're a very good dancer. You know that, um, that, uh, that 2001 Odyssey, they, they got a dance contest now. Mm. And I think that we could be a dynamite team together. How old are you, huh? I'm 20. Well, I'm, I'm 19 at the moment, but I will be, I'll be 20 very shortly. What I think is this. There's a world of difference between us, you know? Not just chronologically, but uh, emotionally, culturally, physically, every which way. And this world would get much bigger and much worse with every passing week. <laughs> Can you shift that? Coffee, not sex. It's coffee. See, look, where I work, the people are very remarkable. They're not like these here Bay Ridge people at all. You mean snobs instead of slobs, right? What? Nothing. Hey, you know, Bay Ridge ain't the worst part of Brooklyn, you know what I'm talking? I mean, you know, it ain't like a hellhole or nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, it ain't Manhattan. It is a Manhattan. You get no idea how it changes, you know? Just right over there, right across the river, everything is different, completely different. It's beautiful, it's just beautiful. People are beautiful, offices are beautiful, secretaries, you know, they all shop at uh, Bonwood Taylor. Oh, yeah. And, like, the lunch hours are beautiful, too. Like, you know, they'll give you, like, uh, two hours for lunch and do something that's related. Oh, yeah? Like, uh, we've seen Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah, Romeo and Juliet, yeah? I read that in high school. That's, uh, that's Shakespeare, right? No, it's uh, Zeffirelli, the director of the movie. You know, the movie, film. Uh -huh. You know what I never understood about uh, that, that, that Romeo and Juliet? I never understood why Romeo he took the, the poison so quick, you know? I, I feel like he could have waited or something. Well, that's the way they took the poison in those days. Hey, you're going to eat here. Look at the menu. <gasps> no, no, I just have tea. Tea with lemon. I started drinking tea recently, you know? It's really a lot more refined. Oh, yeah? Yeah. All those women executives in my office, they all drink tea with lemon. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And they notice that I do, too. Yeah. I like coffee, you know? I, I drink coffee. Yeah. You see, like, I've only been this agency a really short time, but uh, already I'm functioning in a kind of a public relations capacity, you know? And if I fill in for the agents when they're elsewhere, like uh, this, this week, you know, I had... Uh, I had business lunches with Eric Clapton at Lakoti Basque and Cat Stevens at Le Madrigal. Oh, far out. Yeah. You heard of those restaurants, huh? No, I, I didn't, I don't know those exact restaurants. I, I know the type. Yeah, but you must have heard of the artists. No, I, no, I don't know, you know, not really. So what'd you say far out for, huh? Cause it sounded like far out, wasn't it? I mean, Oh, yeah. We'd like a, a lemon with some tea now, and, and I like a, cheese, a cheeseburger and some coffee. Hey, you know who came in the office the other day? Hmm. Lawrence Olivier. Who's that? Who's Lawrence Olivier? You don't know who he is? Lawrence Olivier, man, he's the greatest actor in the whole world. Oh, come on, you know who he is. He's the English actor, the one on television does all those uh, Polaroid commercials. You know, Lawrence Olivier. Oh, oh, him. Oh, he's good. Yeah. He is good. Well, anyway, he comes in the office, right? So I just do a few errands for him. So he goes around, he tells everybody in the entire office, he says, I'm the brightest, I'm the most vivacious thing in the entire office he's seen in years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think that you could get, like, a, a camera from him at, like, a discount? 
I didn't ask him about a camera. Because you got one already, right? You slap box okay, look, you enjoying all this stuff I'm telling you? Sure, I think it's good. I think it's well, something. I just think maybe you can't handle hearing about a kind of life that is so completely different than yours. You mean better, don't you? Yes, I mean better. Sure, it's better. Can I have some ketchup, please? I mean, I'm out of this scene almost completely. You know, this Bay Ridge scene. I'm moving into Manhattan. I'm, I'm getting my own apartment. I'm changing. I'm really changing as a person, and I'm growing. You know what I mean? Nobody has any idea how much I'm growing. Once you go on a diet. <laughs> okay, listen. I like it. We could dance together. That's it. We could just dance together, and uh, nothing more, nothing personal. I don't want you coming on to me. I don't know. Because I don't think guys like you anymore for one thing. You're too young, you haven't got any class, and yeah, I'm sick of jerk-off guys ain't got their shit together. Come on, it's easy to get shit together. All you need is a salad bowl and a potato masher. Get your shit together. Would you like to know what I do? It's not necessary. I'll tell you what I do. I work in a paint store, and I got raised this week. Right, you work yeah. in a paint store, right? Yeah. You probably live with your family, you hang out with your buddies, and on Saturday night you go and you blow it all off 2001, right? That's right. You're a cliche. You're nowhere on your way to no place. What do you got, a fucking stairway to the stars or what? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I'm taking a course night to the new school. Next semester, I'm going to take two. Now, you, you probably didn't get no college, did you? No, I did not. Well, did you ever think about going to college? No. Not ever? No, Jew. Well, not back then, no. What the fuck you bugging me about it for? Well, why not? Why didn't you ever want oh, to go to college? Jesus, fuck off. You did not, No, really, right? tell me. Why oh, not? Oh, Jesus Christ. I didn't. thing is, the high get of 2001 is just dancing. It's not, it's not being a best or nothing like that. The only thing is that I, I would like to get that high someplace else in my life, you know? Like where? I don't know where. I don't know. Someplace. You see, dancing, it can't last forever. It's, it's a short-lived kind of thing. But I'm getting older, you know? And, you know, I feel like, I feel like, you know, so what? I'm getting old. Does that mean like I can't feel that way about nothing left in my life, you know? Is that it? Listen, uh, we got a split here. No, I'll walk you the rest of the way. No, I'll meet you at the dance studio, just like you said, okay? Stephanie, I can walk you home. Look, nothing personal, right? Oh, come on, Stephanie, I can walk you. Ah, Jesus Christ! You know... This is a great scene for a few reasons. One, it's not your typical Hollywood date scene. This feels like a real date between two people in the neighborhood. Also, you can see where Stephanie is coming from. Tony, while he's a great dancer and charming in his own ways, he isn't very well-rounded and she finds out this from her conversation with him. He cares about dancing and not much else. And while this laser focus in his interests is admirable, after a while you're going to need more than just dancing if you're going to be in a relationship with someone which is why she wants to keep it simple. Plus, it's hilarious her name-dropping celebrities constantly during their conversations. After Tony's date, he finds out from one of his buddies that Gus got jumped by a Puerto Rican gang named the Barracudas, and he's in the hospital. Now, the guys want revenge, but they can't find the Barracudas. Tony heads home and has another wonderful family dinner. Tony, what did you say to Father Frank Jr.? What? 
What did you say? What did you do? Yeah, what did you say? What are you talking about? You must have said something to him. You sleep in the same room, you talk to him, the next night he stays out all night, he don't come back. I said nothing to him. Priest staying out all night. A priest is not a priest no more and he's grown up, so he can do what he wants. Something you said to him. Oh yeah, you trying to blame me that he ain't a priest no more? Uh, you've been writing to him. <laughs> I don't believe this, you're trying to hang this on me. Forget it. Oh, no, he called, he called, he called. In a couple of days he's, he's gonna see he's wrong. He's going through like a trial of the soul, you know? He's going back to the church. He's going back. No, he won't. He's not going back he to the is. church. He's going, going back to the church. church. I'm he's telling you. He's not... going back. He's not ever going back. You know what? You don't got a priest no more. And you got no saint. You got nothing but three shit children now. Good. Good. I'm sorry, Mom. I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I never say that. I love you, Mom. I really do. <laughs> Tony, it's time to move out, buddy. Sleep in your car or the dance studio, but leave the house, man. Again, it's interesting. You would think after being treated like shit at home, he'd be nicer to folks. But he's a real turd to Annette and coldly dumps her as her as his dancing partner for Stephanie. Now, Tony and Stephanie's first rehearsal goes very well because they're both naturals, but also have a chemistry dancing together. Tony heads to the club with his buddies and brings Frank Jr. along. We even see a young Fran Drescher at the club. And now we know why Frank left the priesthood. Hey, are you as good in bed as you are on that dance floor? <laughs> well, are you? Are you as good in bed as you are on the dance floor? Hey, you never made it in a bed. <laughs> Watch this. This, this ain't my regular partner, but just see. Oh, what are you going to have to drink? We'll get you some, huh? Seven, seven. Seven to seven. Where is she? This is another memorable scene as Fran isn't much of a dancer and Tony's had enough and basically takes over the dance floor with this amazing solo dance while You Should Be Dancing plays from the Bee Gees. It's just an iconic scene. Really amazing moves from Travolta that he just made look easy when they were absolutely not easy to do. And the cinematographers kind of took the Fred Astaire approach of filming Travolta dancing from head to toe. And this meant you really knew Travolta was dancing. These weren't just, these weren't stand-ins. It was just an excellent, excellent way of shooting. That being said, this movie is so out there. You kind of feel the euphoria of Tony owning the dance floor, dancing to a fabulous song, and then Frank has to listen to Bobby's problems.
your second father. Yes, call me Frank. Frank. Frank, listen. Yeah. Come here, you want to hear something? Listen. I got I, my girlfriend, you know? Can I tell you something? Yeah. Come here for a sec. Listen, Frank. Um, want to hear something? I, I, I got a lot of ideas. You see, like I was reading up about the Pope. Hey, father. Yes, you're Frank. 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 Yeah, Frank. Frank. Yeah, Frank. Okay, Frank. Yeah, listen, Frank. Uh, I got a, I got a girlfriend, you know? She's Pauline. Her name's Pauline, and, and... Yeah. I, I... What do you mean? You got a... You, did you... You get her pregnant? Yes, I did. Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> She loves the taste of communion wafers. Well, I, I got a lot of ideas, you know, swimming around in my head. And I, I was reading a lot of stuff lately. I, I heard, like, the Pope, he, he gives a uh, uh, special, this, you know, what is this? Dispensation. Yeah, yeah. You think the, the Pope could give Pauline an abortion? Can he give you a dispensation for an abortion? Yeah, you think he could do this? I don't think so, Bob. Well, maybe, you know, maybe he could do it for me. Maybe, you know, maybe. I'm sorry, Bobby. I don't think so. I was just Did thinking. Did you talk about to your priest about it? Yeah, I, I talked to everybody about it, <laughs> and I talked to a lot of <laughs> a lot of people. A lot of. All right, thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. All right, if you play, you pay. You know, <laughs> it's funny, huh? Don't forget, everybody. The last scene is interesting and played really well by Martin Shakar, who plays Frank, and as his face shows true compassion to what he's heard but he knows there's nothing he can do. And then you have Bobby's so-called friends who are just complete idiots. In the meantime, Annette threatens to have sex with a random person in the club if Tony doesn't make it with her now. <laughs> they decide to go to their hotel on wheels, but she's not on the pill, nor has a diaphragm. And obviously Tony doesn't carry rubbers on him. So there goes that night of bliss. Did he also say IOU instead of IUD? <laughs> I don't know, but it's great. Then, to add insult to injury for Annette, the guys play a prank on her on the bridge, acting like they slipped and fell into the water. The next day, Frank leaves his parents' house and tells Tony to live his life for himself, not for others. That night, Tony practices with Stephanie at the studio, then takes her to White Castle with his buddies, who basically act like cavemen. <laughs> to break up, you might do... What's up? We've been waiting, man. Uh, Pete said you was practicing, you know. Hey, Tony, we were cruising you-know-who. Looking good. No, no, don't talk about that. Talk about it, man. Stephanie, this is uh, Joey. This is Double J. This is Bobby C. How you doing, Stephanie? Hi. How do you do? It's Stephanie. You a dancer? Yeah. You hungry? Yeah. What do you want to eat, huh? <laughs> 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 I'm going to change and uh, then I'll... Hey, ooh, my own. What my rock is? You learn how to act. Got nice tits. Looks like I'm gonna be traveling, you know, promotional tours with authors and performers. Of course, I'm gonna hate to leave Manhattan even briefly. There's certain ballets and concerts I'm just gonna have to miss. Yeah, tell them about the people coming to the office. That's what they want to hear. Tell them that. Oh, oh, you know who came in today? This guy, David Bowie. He comes in here as his asking train coat, right, He's Daddy? a faggot. It's a half faggot, man. Hey, relax. Come on, sit down. You mean he's a bisexual? Yeah, he swings both ways. Men and boys. <laughs> oh, so yeah? funny. Well, you know who came in today? Joe Namath. You know Joe Namath. He comes in and uh, he wanted some coffee, so I brought him some coffee, and then he asked me to sit down and have some coffee with him. You had coffee with Joe Namath? Yeah, that's right. We were talking a little bit. He wanted to know what it was like to be uh, 21. And I told him I didn't know, because I was just 20. Yeah? What else? That's all. Hey, done enough? Hey, don't you never chew, Tony. Don't you never chew. Hey, look, when my mother dies, I'll give you the job, right? You know what's going on in your throat, man? Big chunks of hamburger, you know? Big gobs like dog food, dog friskies, doggy yummies. You know something, Joey? He's gonna turn into a dog. 
Stephanie, listen, can I talk to you for a second? I was listening to what you said in there before, and you seem to know a lot of people in a lot of places and a lot of things. I, um, I got a friend of mine, you know, he's a, he's a very good friend of mine, and he, he, he got a girl pregnant. He got a girl pregnant, and, and I wanted to know if you if you had to make a choice between getting an abortion and, and, and have to get married to somebody, what would you do? Well, who'd I have to marry? You'd have, you'd have to marry me. You'd have to marry me. Yeah. I think I get an abortion. Hey, so long, Tony. It's very nice meeting you. So what'd you guys think of her? Hey, Tony, I liked her. I thought she was nice. I liked yeah. her a lot. Yeah. She's a snotty bitch, man. She's cool. You just gotta get to know her. That's all. <gasps> hey, Tony, did you fuck her yet? What do you think? I don't think so. Well, you guys got a lot of growing up to do, you know that? A lot of growing up, you're babies. <laughs> well, Bobby's troubles seem to be rubbing off on Tony. Hey, Mr. Fusco. Look, I need the afternoon off. Sam's out, Harold's sick. Here, take me. But, uh, but I got him, Mr. Fusco. Sorry, Tony. Well, look, all I'm asking for is one afternoon off. I've been here almost eight months. I didn't miss a day yet. Not today, Tony. Oh, come on, Mr. Fusco. Some of those farts, they, they miss three, four days at a time. You don't say nothing to them. Hey, cool off. Look, I got to have the afternoon off. I'm taking it. You do, you're fired. I'm doing it. Then you're fired. Then fuck you, asshole. Tony, I don't want to marry Pauline. I don't give a fuck about this country. Tony, I got to marry her. Fuck it, she won't get the abortion. Everyone says I got to marry her, Tony. Who says that? Oh, fuck her fucking parents, my fucking parents, a fucking priest on the corner, a fucking high school guidance counselor. Tony, I'm paralyzed. I got no more control. I mean, you and me, Tony, we've been friends for so long. I'm hurting. Shit. You're, you're always, you're always together, and I'm always fucking up, and you're always all right, you know. I know. Oh come on, everybody fucks up, really. Don't worry about nothing. You're, you're, you're great. I'm in, a, I'm in a terrible rush. I hate to leave you like this. You got no idea how much I appreciate this. I mean, this car is very important for me today, you know. Will you call me tonight? Yeah, I'll call you. I'll call you. Later. Don't worry about nothing. All right. All right Take care. I'll, I'll talk to you later then. Yeah. You call me tonight, right? Yeah. You gonna call me tonight? Now, one of the sad and kind of funny scenes is when Bobby walks away and the audience sees him wearing those awful white shoes with heels. The whole reason Tony needed the day off was to help Stephanie move. And then Tony gets another surprise. Stephanie, who is that guy? Oh, he's a, a ranger, record producer. He wants to do films. Oh, he's going to move now to a more expensive apartment. I met him at the agency. He didn't want his wife to know how much money he had until the divorce was final. Come on, let's go. I mean, who is he to you, Stephanie? That's what I'm talking about. He's a friend of mine, okay? He's a friend. And I was living with him for a little while. 
Are you in love with this man or what? I mean, tell me, tell me the story. I mean, that's all I'm asking. No, I'm not. We we had we had a thing, you know. It, it didn't work out, and it's over now. And he's my friend, and he still likes me. He likes. He likes you to have uh, to have you around for a quick peace when when he feels like. He it, helped right? me, man. You don't know what it's like at that place. It's crazy. You don't know shit. You know. I didn't know how to do stuff, so I go to him and I would ask him, and he and he would tell me how to do things, and then I go back to work and everything would be all right. Otherwise, I'd be walking around like an idiot, going, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And he helps me. He, he does. Helps. He helps you what? Get in and out of the sack. Oh, Is that what he helps you do? He helped me. Sure. What the hell you expect me to do, man? What do you expect me to do? He helped me. Don't cry about it. I mean, you know. All right, so we helped you. That's good for you. All right, come on. We, we, let's get out of here. I'm sorry. Sorry. Don't worry about nothing. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about nothing. In many ways, as Eber mentioned, Tony is a lot like Rocky Balboa. He means well, and he shows he cares in his own way. Like this scene where they stop at a park to take Stephanie's mind off things. It's pretty, isn't it? Tall that bridge is. That bridge, that tower right there goes up 690 feet. They got 40 million cars going across there a year. 127,000 tons of steel is involved in that. The concrete there, they got almost three quarter million yards of concrete. That's right. The center span right there is 4,260 feet long. And with the on-ramps, it all together total is like something like two and one half miles. You know all about the bridge, don't you? That's right. I know everything about the bridge. You know what else? They got a they got a guy buried in the, in the cement. Yeah. Know how it happened? Well, they was working on it apparently at the time, and they um they, I guess they were pouring the cement, and he slipped off, you know, on the upper part of the bridge, and uh, you know fell in. Fuck. What a way to go. I come down here a lot, you know, I, I get ideas. Oh yeah, what kind of ideas you get? I don't know, daydreams, you know, I daydream a lot. Alright, there's about 30 minutes left in the movie. There's plenty that happens, including the big dance number at the club between Tony and Stephanie. However, there are a few darker moments that occur that I almost forget about since most people only remember the iconic dance scenes. In many ways, it's probably best just to remember the film for the dance scenes, though the rawness of New York in the 1970s is a great thing to have on film. That being said, many of these darker scenes would never fly today. But it's also an interesting movie because of the characters, because the main group of guys, including Tony, say some very racist things. They have overly homophobic behavior, and often they're incredibly sexist. 
And this actually adds a realness to the film, because these types of characters definitely existed and they still do today. Not all protagonists in films have to be strictly good or bad. People are often strutting the line of that often, just like in real life. But the film works mainly because of Travolta's performance. Without Travolta, the film does not become a hit. But also what puts it over the top is, of course, the music. Saturday Night Fever set the stage for iconic dance movies like Fame and Flashdance, Footloose, and Dirty Dancing to come in the 1980s. All of the movies succeeded due to the enormously popular soundtracks. While the movies themselves are enjoyable, they're not necessarily great films. I'd say Saturday Night Fever is iconic for being a time capsule of the burgeoning disco scene in the late 1970s. But those looking for Academy Award winning material here need to kind of temper their expectations. Though, it's better than you might think. If you can do that, you'll enjoy the film for what it is. Alright, some fun facts. Donna Pascal was almost considered too pretty for the role of Annette. So she put on 40 pounds and brought back her native Brooklyn accent, which she had to overcome while studying drama at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. So because those studios knew they had a huge hit, they wanted to draw on even larger audiences for younger viewers to see the film. So they had an edited PG version that was released that was about 10 minutes shorter and it cut out some of the darker scenes mostly found later in the film. John Travolta ran two miles a day and danced for three hours daily to get in shape for this film. In the end, he dropped 20 pounds. Now, filming was almost interrupted when the local mafia group tried to extort protection from the crew. In fact, the nightclub where the film was shot was hit with a small firebomb. John Travolta used two white suits in the climax of the film, and he had to switch suits between takes because one would become so heavily soaked with sweat and had to be dried while he was wearing the other one for subsequent takes. Production of the film had to be briefly halted so that John Travolta could attend the funeral of his girlfriend, Diana Highland. The couple had earlier appeared in the movie The Boy in the Plastic Bubble from 1976, and that was their only joint venture. It was Highland that actually encouraged Travolta to take the role of Tony Manero. Now, according to John Travolta, the Bee Gees weren't involved with the film at the very beginning. He said he was dancing to Stevie Wonder and Boss Gags. So the iconic movie poster with John Travolta in a white suit and his chest is out and he's pointing uh, one arm up and one arm pointing down, was that was not a planned shot. In fact, it was an afterthought at the end of a long day. And John Travolta remembers saying, it was a 14 or 15 hour day and the photographer said, do you have anything else in you? And I said, oh geez, okay, how about this? The next thing I know, I'm looking at photographs about three months later for the poster ideas and I said, oh my God, I can't believe they actually picked this shot. I didn't know it would create an iconic figure that it ultimately did. For the role of Joey, Ray Liotta, and David Caruso auditioned. Alright, originally my mom and I chatted about the iconic Saturday Night Fever soundtrack back on episode 81, but again, I had to pull all the soundtrack episodes due to a threatening letter from the RIAA. Therefore, you will hear our discussion about each song, but sans the music, sadly. But it's still super fun to hear my mom's memories about the film and the soundtrack because she lived through it. She was, you know, that, that was the height of the disco career, and she was... Uh, it was a few years before I was born. So I'm going to play that, and I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Okay, we're going to have fun this time. <laughs> and so we're going to have someone new instead of our normal gang of movie buffs. We're going to go have someone on the podcast that actually lived this era, the disco era. I wasn't born yet. This was a year before I was born. And so you remember this, the disco craze and... Out clubbing and whatnot. You know, I, I remember it, um, though I'm getting at that age now, old memories, you know, fade. 
So this is why I'm doing it now instead of 10 years from now. Well, that's good. I might not even be here 10 years from now. Okay. Of course, this is my mom, Joanne. <laughs> Hi, guys. All right. So do you remember, did you see the movie first or did you hear the soundtrack first? You know, I can't, well, I really don't remember. I remember I absolutely seeing the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. And I don't know if I went with your dad or not because, you, you know, it came out in 77 mm-hmm. We were married in 76, so it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. Dad doesn't like, like movies. Uh, <laughs> movies, and especially ones that have music in it. Yeah. Um, but he likes the know. Blues Brothers. Well, yeah, but that he likes blues. Yeah, he doesn't like it, disco. disco yeah. And um, I like it because I like the dancing and everything. And, you know, being Now, in did it. you like the Bee Gees before this? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, and and some of the other. Um, it was interesting in researching the different artists on the album. Yeah, of the music that they did before the disco thing right. came up. So so was it? Yeah, it was. Uh, now okay, so did you were you going to disco clubs and things like that? No. So and you know, and this is funny because when I was watching the movie, I thought. Whoa! I've I never went to a club like that. I mean, we'd go to at that time you'd go to bars, yeah, but not. It was a, a different type of a bar atmosphere. Usually, it was a bar restaurant, right? And they'd have um, a lot of times they'd have an entertainer that would play the guitar, so it was right. folk music, or they would have. Um, disco music playing right and then you get they'd have a little dance floor and you you dance, dance them, yeah. but i never did the disco steps that they so you were weren't doing. going to like studio 54 in new no. york and obviously no. you weren't doing cocaine in the bathroom <laughs> and things like at least no. i hope not maybe, maybe that's why i'm so jittery now but no okay that's no. good but no. no this is one of the most iconic soundtracks in movie history and it's the second most selling soundtrack of all time now, what is number one do you know that i put you on the spot of um, a soundtrack. A soundtrack. It's a fairly new. It came out in the nineties. Came out in the nineties. Wow. Um, that. Hmm. I'll yeah. give it away. It's yeah. it's the Bodyguard soundtrack with Whitney oh, Houston. Okay. Um, okay. Good one. It, yeah. yeah. So this sold over forty five million copies worldwide. It's one of the best selling albums of all time, not just soundtracks. Wow. And it was number one on the Billboard charts for twenty four straight weeks. And so, I mean, this was. In the culture, this when you think of disco, in the disco era, you think of this movie and this album. Um, yeah, it was interesting also to find out about um, the songs that are on the album uh, that may, got the Grammys, mm-hmm. and like you said, were on the uh, charts for nonstop, nonstop, yeah. which is unbelievable. So yeah. this is this will date you. I don't know if you had this on vinyl. I do remember you had this on 8-track. No, I have it on vinyl. And vinyl? Yes. Okay, but you had it on 8-track, too. Yes. Which is the worst medium of of, uh, <laughs> of uh, music ever, because that thing would break. Oh, yeah. And then you'd be in the middle of a song, and it would then switch over to yeah. the next part, because it was all in sections. I loved yeah. it when when the tape started to come out. And <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and it was, oh, oh, gosh. And then you'd have to get your pencil and rewind yeah, it. This yeah, this is way worse than cassettes. Eight yeah. tracks were the worst. Yeah. I hope the hipsters don't bring that back. That that would no, That's a no. terrible medium. Yeah. All right, let's just go right into it, unless you have other things you wanted to talk about before we get into no, specific that's, songs. No, that's okay. okay. That's All right, okay. so let's start with 
the first song, which is arguably one of the most popular dance tracks of all time. Right. And that's Staying Alive from the Bee Gees. What, what do you think about this song? Would you remember the first time you heard this song? I love it. I, I well, I, it's uh, you know, the uh, cliche, it's got the beat. Yeah. But, um, and it fits so perfect in the opening of the movie. Yeah. Uh, because it just, the way he walked, uh, I mean, John, John Travolta was really, uh, he played this part really good. Yeah. Uh, because he was just that, you know, peacock guy Mm -hmm. walking down the street, just, you know, and, um, and every beat just fit him, you know, when he was, so it was, um. Now, did you watch Welcome Back, Cotter? And do like, did you know him before this? Yes. Yeah. There was, uh. That was interesting to, to mm-hmm. see him. Yeah. Now, what about this particular song? So you're not sick of it? Because, I mean, no, everyone's heard this no, a million times. No, I, I could listen to that over and over again. Okay. So, the, yeah, this is one of the most iconic songs ever. I mean, probably the most, when you think of disco era, Stan Alive, I mean, it's self-parody yeah. at this point. Yeah. Uh, so much so that um, it was in the movie Airplane, you know, when they're in the disco bar. And, he's, uh-huh. and Robert Hayes is kind of doing the Travolta things. And he, twirls his jacket off and they throw it back at him that you know that type of thing but and that's my favorite but this is kind of almost like to an extent like time of my life from dirty dancing mm-hmm. like it's just in your yeah. iconic dna and i think know. when you hear it the first movie you think of is yeah is, is, well you sorry. definitely think dance music you think 70s you think yeah. disco yeah. um yeah I, I don't get sick of it either i think when you still hear it i think it's it's a great song mm-hmm. I, what's funny is you hear, you know the the chorus. I mean, that's yeah. an infectious chorus. But when he's singing, like a lot of people complain about rock singers. Well, I can't understand the lyrics. I don't understand when he's like, I don't know what he's saying. Like he's like mumbling words, and and Barry Gibb's voice is it? I think it's Barry Gibb. Who's the who's the high? Yeah, crazy high voice. Yeah. So even though it's kind of a cheesy dance song, the the lyrics are actually about living on the streets of New York. Yeah. But I can't understand the lyrics except for ha ha ha, staying alive. All right, let's go into the next song, and uh, it's another BG song, and this is "How Deep Is Your Love." What do you What do you think about this one? I like that one. I I was look watching the movie to see if the what scenes yeah. if the soundtrack followed in it doesn't. So it's not um, chronological at all. Not at all. Um, this was like the sixteenth song that came up. Oh wow! Um, and it was. You know, you think it would come in the... Maybe they did it because of the popularity of the songs, why how they placed them on I the did, album. Yeah, I don't know if they did. I, this probably is in the notes. And by the way, my mom did hours and hours of research. You should see all the paper that's sitting here right now. Anyway, I, I get it from you. Um, but no, I, I think... A lot of times when they do movies, they put in the music last, and so I, okay. I don't know if they if they did it. Yeah, because I, I was uh, this one came in number like it was like the sixteenth time it came in. Yeah, and um, he was on the subway mm-hmm. going. Uh, this was after this is almost at the end. Oh, how deep is your yeah. yeah. Uh, and he was on the subway going to step, see Stephanie, mm-hmm. and so. Um, yeah, I like this song. I thought it was uh, was good. I, I probably like this song now more as an adult than it is a kid because it's, it's a ballad. Oh, yeah. Um, but as a kid, the, the song kind of bored me, but I wanted more up-tempo songs. Uh, but listening to more mature ears, I think it's a well-crafted ballad, and it makes sense it was a pretty big hit. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, still not my favorite, but I don't skip it like I would as a kid. <laughs> so. There's a couple on this that, that I skip. You skip? Okay. Yeah. But okay. by far, I mean, the, I think most people bought this because of the Bee Gees. 
I mean, there are other hits on here. Yeah. Um, but the Bee Gees, even though they were popular before, this kind of sent them into like the, another stratosphere. They became super popular uh, after this movie. Yeah. All right, next one. It's another kind of almost ballad. A little bit more up-tempo, but it's Night Fever from the Bee Gees. Right, Okay, right. Well, how do you feel about this one? I like that one, too. And that one um, was a couple of times that they played within the, that. The first time was when he was getting ready to go out that night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's looking at himself in the mirror, and he's flexing his muscles. Mm-hmm. And uh, also you see the iconic posters on his wall. Oh, yeah. What is he have? Farrah Fawcett. Oh, of course. And um, which dad I had bought dad for real? Yeah, yeah, I got dad. Why is that poster? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But it was on his wall in his den. Really? Yeah. yeah. Why didn't he hand it down? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Thanks a lot. But uh, and the Rocky poster. Oh, Rocky and because Rocky was out a year before. Yeah, yeah, and uh, which has some interesting contents i was reading about it was either the director or when they had the change of the movie mm-hmm. i guess somebody did had dealings with the rocky movie oh. and and it said that it was surprising that they left the rocky poster still in his bedroom right um yeah so uh doing that and then it came on again um when they were at the disco and they were all dancing in a line mm-hmm. it was a line dancing disco yeah but um i liked it again yeah good beat good dance one thing i forgot to mention about i think this is the first soundtrack that wasn't just score music it wasn't just instrumental that really took off as a soundtrack because before i'd say maybe simon and garfunkel with the graduate might have been the first like soundtrack that you that people bought for songs as opposed to just background music yeah um, this kind of put it like once this came out and people knew you could actually sell songs like that, then the eighties kind of became a, a very soundtrack heavy, right. um, based on actual music as opposed to the score. Mm-hmm. Um, but for this song, I think it's a little bit more up tempo. It's, it's crazy how many hits are on this album. Oh, I mean, it's a long album, but yeah. yeah, um, this is a really good track. I think, uh, I would like to hear this right after Stand Alive instead of How Deep Is Your Love. I think if they had done it a little differently in the order, I think it would have been better. Yeah. Um, I think I, – I don't under – it's too bad they didn't go with how it came in the movie because – More chronological. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, well, I get why they put Stand Alive first. That's your biggest Oh, hit, yeah. So you might well, as well start yeah. with that. And, I mean, that starts out the movie, so you – know, Yeah. I, I definitely like Knife Fever way more than How Deep Is Your Love. So let's play it now. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next one. I'll take this one first. And so this is More Than a Woman, another BG song. And I always like this song. I think this is my second favorite uh, on the entire album. And I remember seeing, so in Short Circuit, uh-huh. you know, when Johnny Five, the robot, is is watching all the TV. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And then he starts dancing with Awashidi's character, who was actually named Stephanie in that, too. <laughs> um, they start slow dancing to this this song i think they also slow dance to another song that's um oh no they don't slow dance they um you should be dancing which is later on the soundtrack they also do that i i like short circuit uh-huh. um but no this has got an infectious chorus and a great hook so the whole more than a woman part that mm-hmm. that's the way they harmonize on that is really well done and i think that's what gets me every time it's tough to beat the song stand alive but this this song's right up there for me it, what do you what it, do you think i liked it too um uh and this the first time um, he dances with Stephanie at the dance studio, this they play this song, mm-hmm. and so it really 
it really fits uh, with the two of them. I think it, the words mm -hmm. and everything, um, mm -hmm. it, it's a good good song. So would you remember hearing when you went out dancing with my dad, which I, I have a tough time remembering <laughs> or even thinking about, um, would you, would this, would they play this song? Because it seems like a pretty, they yeah, play this a lot. I, yeah, yeah. All right, so the last song of the, I believe the first side mm -hmm. of the album, See, it was a double album because there's so many tracks on this. Um, if I Can't Have You by Yvonne Elman. Now, you did a lot of research on her. Yeah. So why don't you tell me about Yvonne Elman and If I Can't Have You? Okay. Uh, so in 1971, it says Elman moved to New York City for the Broadway production of Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm -hmm. where she did you like that? Did you like Um, It was different. Uh, you know, it, it was good. So did you um, see the Broadway, not to go off on tangent, but did you see the Broadway play? Because I know you've seen the movie. No, I didn't see the, I didn't see the play. I saw the, I mm. saw the movie. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, um, it was, it, it was interesting that she, um, sang, uh, backup vocals for Eric Clapton. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Version of the Bob Marley song, I Shot the Sheriff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's her. In okay. 1974. Yeah. Uh -huh. Um, and then she went on to tour as part of Clapton's band. Okay. So it was a backup singer. She, um. And then got a contract with RCO Records and... Oh, yeah, because um, that's the um, Bee Gees label, yeah, RSO. Yeah. Yeah. And then she were, had a couple of, of albums and then uh, the song written by um, the, the uh, Bee Gees, mm -hmm. uh, Barry and um, Love Me. Uh -huh. And um, uh, so she, uh, and then she also, it, it was interesting uh, that she appeared in Hawaii Five-O. Oh, really? In, 19, in the 1978, the original Hawaii Five-O. So only for an episode or in, like, It just said uh, she appeared in it. Just probably in an episode. Yeah. Yeah, so after like four tracks in a row, um, you actually get another, of the Bee Gees, you get another artist here, which is kind of nice. Um, however, it was, this, as you said, this was actually written by the Bee Gees, this yes, song. Yes, yes. Um, the Bee Gees actually released this, uh, their own version as a B-side to Stand Alive. Oh. Okay, so if yeah. you bought the single, this was the, the, the you one. heard this song by the Bee Gees. And, but actually, I enjoy Yvonne's version better. It's a little bit more up-tempo. It's yeah. a little bit more rocking. And uh, I was kind of surprised. There's a few power chords, um, guitar uh, uh -huh. chords in the intro, which is good. And she's got a nice voice. It's a well-done pop song. Dude. Yeah. Well, you know, it, and, it's, and it's said that... Um, when the Bee Gees were working on Saturday Night Fever and wrote How Deep Is Your Love, mm -hmm. they had written it for her. To, ah, okay. But Stigwood, um, I guess he was the producer. Yeah, he's the main guy. Yeah, yeah. Wanted the Bee Gees to perform it. Got it. So instead she sang If I Can't Have, have You. you. Uh -huh. And the song was a big hit, raising to number one on the billboards. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you like the song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was. But do you like the Bee Gees stuff more? Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, so we go to side two of the first album, the first record, and this is a two-record, two-LP set. And so this whole second side is all instrumentals. And before I get into it, I'm going to say that this soundtrack would have been a lot better if they would have made a second album of just the instrumental music. I yeah. think the instrumental music really bogs down this album. It kind of puts on a lull. I think they work really well in the context of the film, but I don't think they work as well on a soundtrack because you hear five really good like actual singing songs yeah. and then it just this is kind of boring but we'll go into it anyway <laughs> um the one i actually do like is is one we'll talk about now it's the fifth of beethoven played by walter murphy this is kind of a fun novelty track and it's basically taking the super famous classical piece by beethoven 
which is Beethoven's fifth, and making it a pop dance song. So in a way, it's kind of cool because it's introducing a younger uh, listener who might not listen to classical music to this particular, you know, to the genre. But and the title of the track is a play on words because the fifth is supposed to be a reference to you know drinking booze, like uh, a fifth or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then making it you know Beethoven, Beethoven's fifth of symphony. So uh, that's why it's called a fifth of Beethoven. Yeah. So what, what do you think? Yeah, about this and, and also this was played when they were coming into the club. Mm-hmm. When they were all their walk into the club, and um. It, it was interesting that um, this Walter um, Walter Murphy Murphy yeah was a uh, he was best known for this fifth adaptation of this mm-hmm. um, uh, which topped the charts and um, he did some other disco classics which um, I don't really unless I right unless now? I heard them yeah. I like Flight seventy six. Um, so were you way into disco, like the the music, or you just like certain artists? No, well, I, I like music. I like yeah. all types of music. So uh, whatever's on the radio, mm-hmm. whatever the station was at the time that you know I'd be listening to, I'd listen to it. Mm-hmm. So you're more, um, more open than Dad. Oh, I listen to all types of music. Yeah. I you know I'm not just one uh, country western. Yeah. There's some I like, you yeah. know, but um, uh, I mean I even like the opera. Mm-hmm. certain ones uh but uh, yeah i can i can do disco i can do r&b i can do you know the blues mm-hmm. and, yeah, just overall everything okay so this particular track do you do you like it or do you do you, would you rather ha- i i it's okay i i could skip over it okay you know and, I'm, I'm with you but as for the instrumentals this is probably my favorite instrumental that's yeah on the it's, it's really neat how he um gave a, a new lease on life to this. Yeah. I also wonder, since this is I public domain probably at this point, he probably could get away with, I don't know if, if Beethoven's family gets credits for this, yeah. but you mean it's a it's know. a piece that's over a couple hundred years old. So, mm-hmm. All right. So the next one, and this just shows you how bloated this album is. They show it, they, they're playing a different version of More Than a Woman by a band called Tavares. And I'm not sure why. They did this because as much as I love the Bee Gees, Bee Gees version of this track, there's absolutely no point in having a different singer covering the same track on the same album, and especially when you have a CD. So this team seemed like total overkill on an already very long album. And to me, this version is inferior compared to the, the Bee Gees. I think it's a waste of time, and I, I'm not sure why it was included. They could have left it in the movie, but I don't think you need it on the soundtrack. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I th- this uh, was near the this was a done at the dance contest when they were when um travolta and the gal were were dancing for that so that way it was played there but um yeah i i I don't know um if they really needed both um it's interesting about the traveris is that how you i think or traveris traveris um the brothers. It, this was an American R and B funk and soul music group. Okay, they were born and raised in Providence, Rhode Island. Okay, also they were inducted into the Rhode Island Music Hall of Fame in 2014. <laughs> but um, I can't imagine there being a huge amount of people in the Rhode Island Music Hall. Well, their parents, I guess, were performing back in 1959. Okay. And so, um, and it was interesting also that 
the future Aerosmith drummer, Joey Kramer, yeah. appeared as the token white guy drummer. Really? <laughs> in the later incarnation called the Turnpikes. See, that is interesting uh, because they always say Joey Kramer has a very R&B funk influence in uh -huh. his drumming style. And that also transferred to her, especially early 70s Aerosmith. So that makes a lot of sense. I had no idea. Yeah. That's cool. And it was, and it was also interesting in uh, 74, um, they had a number one R&B hit. With Holland Oaks. Oh, really? Um, She's Gone. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really good song. Huh. Um, and it, it was interesting because which became a hit for Holland Ox, uh, Oaks, Oaks yeah. uh, as well as two years later. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess they redid it. But um, Well, that, that's all interesting stuff, but I still think they should have been left off the soundtrack. <laughs> so we're going to play it anyway okay. for it. All right, so let's go to next. This is an instrumental track, and this is Manhattan Skyline by David Shire. Um, yeah, this is an instrumental track that probably works best in the context of the movie rather than the soundtrack because it's basically generic 70s disco background music, which you can hear right now. Uh, sounds like it could have been in Chips or Charlie's Angels, <laughs> like in the 70s TV show. I, they totally should have cut this from the soundtrack. I, again, in the movie it's fine, but yeah. I, I don't understand why they put it on the soundtrack. What do you think? Well, the, yeah, they, it was in the movie because um, Tony and Stephanie were at the dance studio and mm -hmm. they were dancing to this. Okay. Um, but yeah, in in the album itself, I. I would, I could do away with that. You could skip um, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. See, actually, this makes makes an interesting point because on CD you can skip it and everything. For the album, you could have just never listened to this side. So I wonder if they did that on purpose because they basically almost put three or four instrumentals in a row. <laughs> so it, yeah. it kind of kills the half the first half because the first half of the the, the soundtrack is amazing and then just yeah. there's kind of a lull in the center. But, yeah. All right. The next one is Calypso Breakdown by Ralph McDonald, and this is a killer because it's a, the second longest track. It's eight minutes long. It's all instrumentals. Again, in the, in the movie, uh, or even a party, like a, this could be a dance song you play at a club, but if you're just listening to it, it's, it does nothing for me. It's pleasant, but it goes on way too long, mm -hmm. and I'm sure if you were coked up in the disco <laughs> clubbers back in the day, they were probably happy about this song. Um, if it was a bit of an edit that highlighted the guitar solo a bit more, there's a solo in the five minute mark, I think it would have been a little bit more intriguing. But where was this in the actual movie? Uh, this was at the dance contest. Oh, okay. Um, and I actually believe, I don't know, I don't think it was, it, I get it confused sometimes with the, uh, the Latin dancers mm. and um, whether or not they actually danced to that one or there was another one um, called uh, Sal Salisation? Salisation? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. If that was the one. Um, but this um, Ralph McDonald that wrote this, mm -hmm. um, he was, now, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, a Trinbagonian American percussionist sounds about right to me I, I guess from trinidad he was from trinidad he, okay uh, you know or his family was from trinidad okay um and he he did a lot of um uh grammy award winning for a duet for R roberta flack oh yeah yep. and donny hathaway where is the love okay and um just the two of us uh, well that's bill withers bill withers yeah. in uh grover washington yep uh, evidently, he he grew up in Harlem, in mm -hmm. New York. But yeah, he was, uh, and he was 
17 when he started playing uh, for Harry Belafonte. There you go. So he's very talented. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. Yeah. I, still, I would still skip this track. That's why you're only hearing <laughs> yeah. it in the background. But that's okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And we go to side three. This is with the, now this is the second album. Um, and this is another instrumental. This is Night on Disco Mountain by David Shire again. And I think this is a little bit better than Manhattan Skyline. I kind of like that. It's a dark tone to it. It fits the scene where the guys are screwing around on the bridge and they act like it, uh, they fall over and they freak out yeah, the woman yeah. who's tagging along. Uh, again, it, it's really tricky putting instrumentals on soundtracks. I, I, again, I, I think they work best in the context of the film, but not necessarily listening on their own. So there's an interesting story about this song. It's actually based on an 1867 musical piece written by a Russian composer named uh, Modis Moskorsky, I yeah. think. And yeah. uh, it's called Night on Bald Mountain. Yeah. And so this version was actually used in Fantasia. The Disney movie, so huh. um, you can hear it in the background. Do you have any other? No, I don't uh, like this one. I <laughs> <laughs> that one. We're right on the par yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, that would be gone. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. all right, let's go to the next one. All right, and this is where the album gets back on track for me, and this is "Open Sesame" by Cool and the Gang. What do you think about this one? Yeah, yeah, this is this is good. Um, this was uh, written in 64. That is a 13-year-old Robert Bell and his brother Ronald. Mm-hmm. And um, five high school friends uh, formed this instrumental band called the Jazz X. Um, okay. And then they changed their name to Cool and the Flames. Oh, in, I didn't know that. In 67. Okay. And then Cool and the Gang uh-huh. in 69. Because evidently um, they wanted to avoid confusion with Jane Brown's uh famous flames uh, oh okay that was his backup band uh yeah okay yeah so um so what do you feel about the song it's good it's good uh this was also done i believe in the in the uh the open sesame in the uh, dance contest okay so there's a lot of music in the dance contest yeah yeah this is one also one of the first movies where i think the film was also based around the almost around the soundtrack i mean because eventually you had your flash dances and your footlooses where the films are okay, but it's the music that you're basically selling. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is one of them. Because the story is really kind of a nothing story. Well, you know, it, it, when I looked at um, Stephanie as, yeah. see, to me, she's a horrible dancer. Oh, really? <laughs> she's cute, I, but she's... she's like, yeah, man. yeah, but... Um, Not compared to John Travolta. Oh, no. And, you know, when it, it always used to get me when he says, oh, she's such a great dancer and i'm thinking you got to be kidding me you know <laughs> but, uh, you know uh, maybe because he he was such a good dancer but um well then you have and we'll, we'll touch upon it staying alive cynthia rhodes who played the main female with the blonde yeah she was a great dancer yes. she was a professional dancer yeah. she was also in flash dance and dirty dancing yeah. so you have you compare her with the character oh, the actress yeah. but you can't compare no yeah. no and so you know which Probably fits the story yeah. because, you know, these aren't professional dancers. No. These are just normal people from the Bronx, yeah, yeah. you know, and the way, the way they talked, it was, it was interesting. They, they, there was a, an article about Donna Pesco, yeah. uh, how she, um, they had said that they thought she was too pretty to play, you know, uh-huh. uh, Annette. And um, so she put on like 40 pounds uh-huh. or 50 pounds for the, the role. And she learned how to speak again. Mm-hmm. I guess she was from 
New York yeah. or something, but with the, with the, accent. the accent and everything. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I like Cool and the Gang, and, and they have tons of hits, and yeah. uh, this is a good deep track that people might forget because of all the hits from the Bee Gees on this album, but it's a great funky song. It adds a bit of grit to the polish of most of these tracks. Yeah. Like it's kind of an authentic you know, R&B dance song. Uh, and depending on my mood in the given day, this actually might be my favorite song on the album. And I enjoy Funk and Soul, and this is a, this is a solid track. Yeah. And I wish there was actually more Cool of the Gang on the album, but there isn't. But you at least get this song, and we'll yeah. play it now. Okay, let's get back into the Bee Gees, and we have Jive talking from the Bee Gees. What is? Uh, what do you think about this one? Love this song. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so this, this was actually a... there's two, the next two Bee Gees songs were actually written before. Yeah, yeah so, because yeah. I, you know, I. Uh, this would be on the radio and everything, yeah. and I, I yeah, uh, always, always like this song. So, um, and this wasn't in the movie. Oh, really? No. It was just on the soundtrack? Yes. That's interesting. Yes. And, um, yeah, because I kept thinking, all right, where is it in, in the movie? It's, it never appears. It never appears. Interesting. There's yeah. a few, too, that are... Um, that they didn't put on the soundtrack? That they recorded for the film but didn't use. Okay. Um, what was interesting, okay. but um, I I didn't find it in the movie, so... Okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, after a bit of a lull, I think Cool in the Gang got the soundtrack back on par, and then you get another really good song with Jive Talking, so it's a real strong, catchy song, great chorus, gets stuck in your head after you hear it, and uh, I even kind of like the cheesy synthesizer yeah. riff in the middle. Uh, this is a really good song. All right, next song, You Should Be Dancing, and this is Disco Done Right. This is a great song, and this is the scene where Travolta's showing all his moves yeah. on the dance floor. This, yeah. is, this is pretty iconic, and perfect song for it. When you hear this song, you immediately think of Travolta, and you oh, think yeah. of Saturday Night Fever. This is my favorite Bee Gees track on the soundtrack. Uh, you even get some semi-heavy guitar work here, which is pretty cool. It's just a terrific track. I, I don't get sick of this one. What yeah. do you think? Uh, Absolutely, I agree. Um, I, I, yeah, you want you want to get up and start yeah. dancing. Yeah, yeah, it, really and, good. And actually, in short circuit, Johnny Johnny Five uh, is doing his good. little <laughs> uh, robot moves to this one as well, which is pretty intense. So, uh, yeah, this is a great song. So we'll play that now. Okay, let's go to another um, iconic. Probably disco band. That's Casey and the Sunshine Band. Their song "Boogie Shoes." What do you think about this one? I like. Well, I like uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band. In mm -hmm. fact, I even saw them. You probably don't even remember when no. we went to Disney World yeah. in Florida. You went to go see them then. They they were appearing on one of the stages uh -huh. in one of the. This is like uh, 1994, yeah, 1995. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they still they do nostalgic. Yeah, places, that's you funny. You did. I don't even remember that. Yeah. No. Yeah. And um, yeah, but I've I've always liked um, all the all their uh, songs that they've done um, mm -hmm. have been um, just really really good, um, and it was funny because um, they used a sixteen bar blues chord progression, mm -hmm. which was funny. Um, yeah, I it's still one of my favorites. So what's interesting is you think disco, but this is actually really this song itself doesn't have much disco. It's more of like a Motown track. Um, it, 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 the horns uh -huh. and like uh, you know it, it feels less disco than some of the other songs. Um, but actually, this is one of the songs that the band's best known for, and uh, it became a hit after it appeared on the soundtrack. Um, and anytime you see a, a retro movie that's supposed to take place in the seventies, they play this song a mm, lot. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a solid, you know, very quick track. It doesn't wear out. It's welcome. It's, it's just a good pop song. And again, I, I hear closer to 
Motown or R&B or Stax as opposed yeah. to like, you know, disco. All right, now they have to go and screw it up and they have to play two more instrumentals. Okay, so we'll, we'll go through these probably quickly. This is Salsation by David Shire. Um, where does this appear in the movie? Yeah, and see, and this is, I was a little confused. I, I think um, it's played at the, the disco mm -hmm. uh, near the end. And I'm not sure if it was... Like I said, um, if it was the song where the the uh, Latin dancers the were, were dancing, yeah, yeah, to it, um, that makes sense. So, um, yeah. Do you I, care about this song? It, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Um, I yeah. could take it or leave it. So far, like all the David Shire tracks have all seemed like filler to me. Like it really didn't need to be on there. Um, Again, we're great in the actual film, uh, but they should have been left off the soundtrack. Yeah. And then another instrumental is KG by MFSB. And for some reason, I don't mind this one as much. I think it's a little bit more gritty than all the David Shire tracks. So I kind of take back my initial statement. We could have left on a fifth of Beethoven in this one. Um, the, the percussion, though, is textbook disco. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, and do you know what the MFSB stands for? I don't. What are you going to tell me? <laughs> It is, it's officially for mother, father, uh -huh. sister, brother. I see what you did there. Nice, yeah. good job. <laughs> and it was, um, and it was more of a pool of um, thirty studio musicians. Okay. Uh, based in at Philadelphia's famed Sigma Sound Studios. Okay. Um, and so uh, it's it was kind of like you had said one time. Oh, the uh, Wrecking Crew. Where they would take no, but they would take, um, or maybe it was the Wrecking Crew. Yeah, the yeah. documentary. Yeah. Yeah, about all these musicians that they played on these and, famous albums. Yeah, 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 and so that was uh, was kind of um, that. They also were uh, on Soul Train. Which that makes sense. I used to watch all, all the time. The time yeah. yeah, yeah, they did uh, a lot of um, things there, and. Um, they, uh, it said uh, they were very influential in establishing the disco sound. And um, one of their tracks sold over one million copies. Which one? Wow. Um, let's see. Oh, I guess it was the Soul Train theme. Oh, they wrote the Soul Train theme? They like, wrote Soul the Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, it was awarded a gold disc by the RIAA. Okay. In 74. Actually, they should have put the Soul Train uh, yeah. theme. That would have been good. That's interesting. All right. Yeah. Okay, let's go to the last song. And uh, it's Disco Inferno by The Tramps. And this is a huge hit. This is this is another song synonymous with uh, the disco era. Um, but really, it became a huge... It was actually recorded before the soundtrack, but it became a huge hit after the soundtrack. The band had actually released it in 1976, and it did well on the dance charts. But once it... it you know, it got put on the soundtrack and the movie came out. It became a mainstream hit and just went crazy. This, to me, is a standout track, even though it's way too long. It's like almost 11 minutes oh, yeah. long. Yeah. But I don't mind it. I yeah. think it's a good way to end the album. And uh, it's far better than any of the instrumentals that are on there. So even though it, there's, it's a little bit too long. But, I mean, it's a dance track. So this is something you play at a club and yeah. you keep going. What do you, what do you think about this? I, I love this song. Mm -hmm. I love this song. And um, the Tramps were an American disco and soul band. Uh -huh. And they were based in Philadelphia uh, and were one of the first, first disco bands, which was... I didn't know that. Yeah. And um, it was interesting. On September 19th, 2005, 
the group's Disco Inferno was inducted into the Dance Music Hall of Fame. Oh, there you go. That uh, makes sense. Yeah, the ceremony in New York, yeah. Actually, I think a couple of these songs should be in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was, uh, it said, uh, Disco Inferno had also had a resurgence and had gathered new fans with the 2016 presidential political campaign hmm. of Bernie Sanders. Of well, all things, I don't think Disco in, and Bernie. In the, well, it said in the USA, due to the song's refrain of Burn, Baby, Oh, burn. okay, that, that got it. That makes sense. <laughs> that's, I see, that's cool. Yeah. Okay, we're back. Let's see if you, you actually listened to all 10 minutes of it. But it was worth it, wasn't it? Okay, so let's let's recap. Does this soundtrack hold up as well for you now as it did when you first heard it back in the 70s when uh, you were... Yes. Childless <laughs> and having fun before we ruined your life. So, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. This is, this is a great, um, great album. And, uh, and uh, it was funny, even watching the movie when I rewatched the movie. You didn't the movie, watch the movie in a long time. I, no. Yeah. Well, it had been on TV. And here I thought all the time, because when you said, gee, do you want to do this uh, podcast? Yeah. And um, I said, sure. Yeah, this would be great. Uh, well, I had the cd yeah and um i thought well i'll watch the dvd when closer gets to the time so i can be fresh in my mind yeah and i gotta watch it you don't have and it. i don't have it i do have staying alive of course you have the inferior version <laughs> yes. actually i've probably seen that more than saturday night fever because you own i probably staying alive. no yeah. okay we might as well get into it what, what about staying alive do you actually like because you I like I like the dancing in it, okay. and I, it's a horrible movie. It is. I yeah. mean, and the acting is, you know. Yeah. But I, I like the music. Do you actually like the production of Satan's Alley? That's the play they're yeah, doing. Yeah, it was okay. It was. <laughs> it, I mean, it worked. It worked. Uh, you know, and the dancers were good, and yeah. um, you know, uh, and it was it was kind of like finally, you know, he made it. He yeah. he came out from. He made himself better from from the first. You know where he was at, and um, yeah, because he really know. doesn't succeed in Saturday Night Fever. He's no. just—he's still a kid, and, yeah, you know, yeah, kind of, and yeah, yeah, because you don't know what he wants to do with his life. No. He's just clubbing, yeah. and so and so this is kind of neat, and and how uh, he has uh, you know kind of gets back with his mom and yeah. and everything, and so yeah, don't um, touch the hair. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, those are always funny scenes with the family. Yeah. Like the, that yeah. Whole thing. Well, of course, Travolta just became a superstar after this movie, too. Yeah. That's a thing, too. I Did you know that uh, Travolta's mother and sister were in the movie? I think I did. So who, what characters did uh, they play? They played, um, let's see, where, um, oh gosh, watch. I, I'm not going to be able to find it. Yeah, you know. I mean, she's got a book of worth of notes here. Wait, it's, it said. Um, the mother, I think yeah. the mother played. Um, oh, his sister played the waitress in the pizza when he went in the beginning to get in. Oh, hey, Tony, what guy? Oh, okay. Two pieces of pizza. This is when the opening of the, That's of the, the girl. movie. Okay. That's his sister. Okay. And then his mother played. Um, oh, where where was this? Uh, I forget which. But she so she's was, in the movie. Too. She's in the movie. That's interesting. Also. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to think, what was he in next after this movie? Oh, he was in Greece. I mean, he was in Greece before this, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, before this. Or was no, it after? No, no, no. no, no. I think that Greece? was after. Okay, so yeah, he played. He was in Greece right afterwards. So he that that's another huge musical. 
Yeah. 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 Um, I see. I found it. Okay. Okay. So uh, his mother plays the woman who who whom he sells the can of paint to. Okay. When she was uh, waiting in the store, and this is in the opening also okay. when he comes in with the paint because he had bought the paint at another paint right, store because right. they didn't have it. Uh-huh. That was his mother. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> I knew I did it somewhere. Well. Uh, but yeah, I so. Um, well, just like John Travolta puts his mother in his movie, I'm putting my mother on my podcast right, so right. thank you so much for being on mom i i really appreciate it i'm glad you um thought enough that i could handle something like i this. did I and mean, was it worth all the research i think so yeah, i think it, the listening audience appreciate it. i i enjoy doing that good more, you know i so. think the listening audience will too and maybe we'll have you back on to do the jazz singer soundtrack oh that would be good Let's see <laughs> uh, dangling a carrot there anyway thank you mom okay thanks brian Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.